One of my mentors was appointed to a large church in Brisbane in the 1980s. Uh, the church had been there for many years. The building needed to be renovated. Uh, so everything had to be removed. They pulled everything out. They went through all the cupboards. They went through and had a good clean-up. And as they were cleaning out the attic space, the space between the ceiling and the roof, they found a gigantic paper mache whale. Giant, massive thing. How long has this thing been here, he said. No one could remember. But they looked it up in the church history book and discovered that during World War II, 40 years before this, the children's church had had a special celebration Sunday. They'd done the story of Jonah, and so they'd made themselves a paper mache whale, a giant paper mache whale. And they'd worked so hard on it uh, to tell the story of Jonah. They'd worked so hard on it, it was so large, it seemed a waste to get rid of it. So they put it in the attic, because we'll use that again one day soon. And 40 years later, that whale and everyone that had put it there had forgotten it was there, and the people had moved on, and the church had changed, and many people who didn't live there anymore, and ultimately that whale was thrown away. Because 40 years in a ceiling in Queensland, paper mache, mm, the whale was more green than blue at that point. That story tells us something about churches and the way we do things and shared spaces of all kinds. Uh, things just sort of get put in a cupboard and someone says, I'll deal with that next week. And by the time next week comes past, it's been 40 years and we've forgotten what's in the cupboard and why. But it also tells us about the story of Jonah. Because as soon as they walked into that space and saw a giant paper mache whale, they said, this must have something to do with the story of Jonah because it's one of those distinctive things of the Old Testament stories because of the old big fish, because of the whale. It's a popular story to tell children and to preach about in church because it's got everything, adventure and escapes and storms and drama and rescue. And that's just chapter one. So why are we in Jonah today? Aren't we working our way through Mark's gospel? Well, a change is as good as a holiday. And remember... From Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we see that Jesus has been proclaiming the kingdom of God. We've said this every Sunday that I've preached here this year, so we better say it again this morning. Let's say it together. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus in Mark's, Mark presents Jesus proclaiming this kingdom of God in word and in deed, telling people to repent and to believe. And we've read about Jesus revealing more and more of his nature and recreating some of the great miracles of the Old Testament in a new and different way. And we read last time I spoke about the feeding of the 4,000 and the reaction of the religious leaders demanding a sign. And in Mark's gospel, we hear Jesus tell these Pharisees that they won't be given a sign. If they can't be bothered to come and follow Jesus, then they won't get a special sign from heaven just for them. Truly I tell you, he says, no sign will be given to you. In Matthew's version of the same story, Matthew tells the same story, adds some extra words, quotes some bit extra of Jesus. In Matthew's version of the story, Jesus says, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. Except the sign of Jonah. And so that's my excuse to take a small break from Mark and take a look at Jonah, a swashbuckling tale of adventure 
and daring do. Except that our focus won't be on the first chapter, because, but more on chapter 4. Jonah's only a very short book, and we'll cover the whole four chapters this morning. So are you ready for that? We've been taking so long and so slowly through the Gospel of Mark that if I went at the same pace through Jonah, we'd be here for three months. But I'm going to do the whole thing in one day. So take a deep breath, do up your seatbelts, let's go. It's only four, four chapters. Chapter 1 is so well known even by non-Christians that we might just skim over the exciting part and talk some more about the dull parts. So if you've got your Bibles there, turn to Jonah. And if your Bible likes mine, it's about 60 pages to the left of Mark because you should all have a, a couple of doggies in Mark at this point. So if you take a couple of pages to the left of Mark, you'll end up in Jonah. But it's a tricky one to find because it only takes up one page. There it is. So in, well, here in this Bible, it takes two pages. It's that bit there, next to Obadiah and Micah. Jonah is in a section of the Bible called the Minor Prophets, not because they're unimportant, but because their books are much shorter than the major prophets. We also find some clues to the life of Jonah in the book of 2 Kings, which is further back in your Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah gets uh, mentioned he gets a mention in the very short record of the life of a king. The king is King Jeroboam II of Israel, which gives us a time frame for when Jonah was alive. He was alive in the 8th century BC, sort of between 780 and 740 years before Jesus. It's sort of where we're looking at. Jonah, 780 to 740 years before Jesus. This is an ancient story. And if you think about what else was going on in the world, that's before Aristotle, that's before Pythagoras, that's before the Romans, that's before the English decided to put some rocks on each other and call them Stonehenge. This is a long, long, long time back in history. So Jonah, 780, 740 BC, somewhere in there, we don't know exactly the years of his life, but we know when King Jeroboam was around. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up against me. Jonah the prophet hears a command from God to go and preach against a wicked city. And this is not a new thing. This is what prophets do. It's their main job, to go and remind people and cities and kings and priests to return to the way of God to go back to the way God wants things done. What is different is that this city, Nineveh, is a foreign city. It's outside of Israel. It's a major city in the Assyrian Empire. So here is a map of the Middle East. Uh, we need to remind ourselves that these things are, these are real places. Uh, so here is Jerusalem and Samaria. This blue bit is the Mediterranean Sea. Here's Egypt. And all the way up here is the kingdom of Assyria. And that blurry word there is Nineveh. It's on the Tigris River. The Tigris and Euphrates are the big rivers that go through Iraq, modern-day Iraq. And Nineveh is right near um, the city of Mosul. If you've heard of Mosul in the news in the last 10 or 20 years, there's been lots of fighting around Mosul. Nineveh is just outside of that. So this is where he's been sent, from his home somewhere here in Samaria. In the, north, uh, the kingdom of Israel has been split in two at this point. So there's the northern kingdom of Israel. It's got the capital in Samaria. The southern kingdom of Judah, capital in Jerusalem. So 
So Israel is split in two. He is a prophet from the northern kingdom. He's supposed to go to Nineveh, to this foreign land. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Instead of heading north and east out of Israel and walking to Nineveh, Jonah walks west. This is not a very good map. Down to the sea, he gets on a boat and heads to Tarshish. So again, Joppa's a city here on the coast. Nineveh's up here somewhere in the top of Iraq and Syria. And instead, he gets on a boat and he wants to go all the way to the other end of Spain, which in that time is the end of the earth. As far as the people living in Israel were concerned, all this bit of Germany and France and up here, the Nether, that didn't exist. And bits of Africa, yeah, that's all there, but then the rest is desert, there's nothing there. And over here, where we know America is, they had no clue. This is the ends of the earth as far as Jonah's concerned. It's like going to the train station and saying, I want a ticket to the furthest place from here. And off he went, heading to Tarshish. We aren't told of Jonah's motivation here, just that he did it. We'll find out in chapter 4 why he went the wrong way, why he deliberately went as far from Nineveh as he could. When we tell this story, we often say that Jonah was afraid. But he was. But he wasn't afraid of the Ninevites, and he wasn't afraid of God, and he wasn't afraid of failure. But we'll come to that in a bit. I'm going to skip over all the good bits. In chapter 1, I encourage you to read Jonah chapter 1 and read it for yourself. There are a dozen messages in chapter 1. Jonah runs from God but can't get away. God sends a storm to stop the boat. The sailors do their best but they can't keep going. They draw lots to discover who's to blame for this storm and it falls on Jonah. They work out it's his fault. Jonah tells them who he is and where he's going. He says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And in a world where people worshipped lots of gods who are all responsible for little bits of creation, here is Jonah declaring that his God is the maker of all things, the God of heaven. And he told them that not only was his God all-powerful and amazing, but that he, Jonah, is running away from him. They try to sail the ship, but they can't. There's some kind of supernatural storm, and finally they do to what Jonah has suggested, And they throw him over the side. This was Jonah's suggestion. He knew he was to blame for the storm because of his disobedience. He didn't want anyone else to die for his sin. He was prepared to drown to save the ship and the sailors. And so they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. The sailors were so impressed by these things that they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. They've lost their cargo, so presumably they come back to port where they tell this amazing tale of the prophet of the Lord who tried to run away but couldn't and gave himself to save them all. And that would make a perfectly fine story if it stopped there. But then along comes the fish. Jonah 1.17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. The Lord wasn't done with Jonah. He wasn't happy for this to be a story just about the futility of trying to escape from God. And so something completely amazing occurs. A huge fish comes along and swallows Jonah. 
We're not going to argue about whether it was a whale or a fish. Some Christians like to have that argument. I'll just say that this story is from centuries before humans invented the ideas of what a mammal is, let alone what a whale is, let alone what a fish is, before we invented the biological categories and decided that whales are mammals and not fish. That distinction hadn't been invented yet. It swims in the water, it's got gills, it's got, it's got flappy bits, it's a fish. If things that have hair and give milk are mammals, then so are coconuts. It's a silly argument. So I'm just going to use fish and whale interchangeably. The text says fish because they hadn't invented the idea of a whale yet. They didn't have a word for it. Often you'll see pictures of the whale plucking Jonah up as soon as he hits the water. Or even before. That sort of they threw him off the edge and before he could even hit the water, the whale jumped up and ate him. But I think chapter 2 makes it clear that Jonah sank for a while before the fish came and ate him. Chapter 2 is a prayer to pray from inside a fish. So if you ever find yourself inside a fish and you don't have, a, don't have time to come up with a prayer, just get out your Bible, turn to Jonah chapter 2 as a good prayer. This is what he prays. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Even as he's drowning, he turns his mind towards the temple and repents of his sins. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But, but, but you, Lord my God, God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. This prayer from inside a fish is a prayer of optimism and hope. There is despair, there is fear, there is concern, and yet there's optimism. Jonah believes that even in the darkest times, God is good and can be trusted. The end of that chapter ends with, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. After three days and three nights in the world of the dead, Jonah comes back. This is the sign of Jonah that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 16, someone returning from the dead after three days. But this is only a setup to the real story. We're not there yet. This is just the intro. Jonah chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. We sometimes tell this story as though Jonah were deposited at the very edge of Nineveh, as though God decided to short-circuit the whole thing and dropped him off on the doorstep. But that's not the case. Nineveh is landlocked. 
It's right up here in the middle of the desert. Well, that's the desert over there, and that's the river there. That's Nineveh. If he got in a boat here and went that way and got swallowed by the whale, the whale would have to go all the way around Africa, back up through the Persian Gulf, up the Tigris River, and then vomit him out at the edge of Nineveh. Now, I'm not saying a whale can't do that, but in three days, that's a pretty fast whale. I don't think that's the point of the story. It seems unlikely. No, I think God took Jonah back to where he had made that fateful decision to run away and gave him the choice to obey. Okay, back to square one. What are you going to do? Here's your choice again. Are you going to try and run away again? Or are you going to do what I've asked you to do? Our God is the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and umpteenth chances. He keeps on calling people to repent and follow him. And this time, Jonah goes and does what he's been told to do. He makes that difficult journey north and west into the land of the Assyrians and preaches this message to the Ninevites. Forty more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned, will be destroyed. And verse 5 says, the Ninevites believed God. The message worked. The warning frightened them. They repented. And the rest of chapter 3 is a story of revival. Hardly any of the people of Nineveh heard or saw Jonah in person. But they passed on the message and were cut to the heart. And even the king of the city heard the message and repented. He says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Jonah's only gone one day into this massive city and the whole place repents. Jonah chapter 3, the end of that chapter, says when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And all of this, These first three chapters of Jonah is to set up chapter 4, where we actually get to the point of the story, because Jonah is not happy that these people have repented and that God has relented. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, and if you've got your Bibles there, here we actually get to the message. All of that was prelude. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong and he became angry. The prophet has preached the message from God. The message has had its desired effect, and the prophet is not happy. He thinks it's wrong. He thinks it's very wrong, and he becomes angry. And he takes his complaint directly to the Lord. And for the first time in the story, we find out why Jonah ran away in the first place. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. See, Jonah knew his God. He knew the nature of God. And here he says he's a God who's gracious and compassionate. He's quoting from Ezekiel, uh, from Exodus, sorry, 34. You've got the reference in your notes. But the Lord introduces himself as, I am the Lord, your God, slow to anger, abounding in love. Jonah knew his God and knew what he was like. 
And Jonah knew the Ninevites. He knew all about the Assyrians, their ways, their religion, their power. The Assyrian Empire had been going for many hundreds of years at this point. They've been conquering and raiding and destroying all over the place. They are cruel and vicious and incredibly violent. Think of the worst things a person can do to another person and then multiply that by 10 and that's the Assyrians. They're a nasty bunch. They're the bullies of the ancient world. They use their power to devastate their enemies and their enemies are everyone who's not an Assyrian. The Assyrians have become the masters of siege warfare. That is the ways to capture cities even when the cities have big, thick walls. They surround the city and then they start building ramps. They bring their slaves in and make them carry rocks and dirt and pile it up against the wall. And they don't care how many slaves get killed because you can always get more slaves. And once they've piled up the dead and piled up the rocks and piled up the dirt and they've got a ramp where they can climb over the walls, well, they do it. They come in and they destroy everything and they take everybody captive and they move them off to foreign countries and turn them into slaves. And then they send them off to run at other people's walls. And Jonah knows this. The Assyrian raids have been reaching down into Israel. So here's the map from about 850. So this is where they're beginning. And we're in 740 or 780, somewhere in there, a few years after that. Eventually, these Assyrians are going to come all the way down, conquer this whole area, take out Samaria, take out Jerusalem, And in 2 Kings chapter 17, we will read that the Assyrians come. The people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria. And the writer in 2 Kings says, and they're still there. When this writer of 2 Kings, the writer of the history, tells this story of this Assyrian empire growing and expanding and destroying, he says, and the people who were taken into exile, they're still there. They've been gone, taken away. That's still all in Jonah's future. At some point here, while Jonah's alive, the, the, the Assyrians sort of have this dark, this dark green area as their home where they come from. They've conquered out by the time Jonah comes around to this dark green area. And then by about, what, 627 BC, so another 150 years later, they'll have taken all of Egypt and all down to Babylonia and all around here, and they'll have conquered Jerusalem or come very close to it anyway. They'll have laid siege to Jerusalem. They've already wiped out Samaria and northern Israel. That's Jonah's future. But he can see it happening. He can see what these people are like. And unless something is done to stop these evil people, they're going to conquer the whole world. So when Jonah gets the word of the Lord to go and preach against the evil of Nineveh and warn them that God will destroy them unless they repent... Jonah decides the best thing to do is to ignore God and go the other way. Because if the Ninevites, the Assyrians, never hear God's message, they won't have a chance to repent. And God will have no choice but to destroy them. Because God is annoyingly predictable. He's annoyingly predictable to Jonah. He is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He relents from sending calamity. And Jonah doesn't want that. Jonah wants the fury of God to rain down against the evil people and wipe them off the face of the earth. He wants fire, not compassion. 
He wants destruction and judgment, not grace and mercy. And he certainly doesn't want grace and mercy on those people. Not on them. He wants them to die. And that's why he ran away. Not because he was afraid of Nineveh. Not because he was afraid of God. He ran away because he was afraid that Nineveh would repent and that God would forgive them. And he was afraid that God would be too merciful to his hated enemies. He'd rather drown in the sea than let that happen. And when God was gracious and merciful to Jonah and saved his life with a big fish, Jonah said, fine, whatever, let's do it. And with gritted teeth, he trekked for days to Nineveh and gave the bad news. Forty more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. You can sort of imagine him whispering it under his breath as he walked into the city. Mutter, 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 mutter. Forty more days and Nineveh. And it, it worked. The people heard the message. It all turned out how he expected. He went, I think he went, I think he's maybe said it under his breath. Forty more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. But someone heard him and told someone else and it got spread around and the whole city repented and God relented and Jonah got annoyed. He got really annoyed. He says to God, just kill me now. I'm sick of this. Just kill me now, God. I'm sick of this. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? And the rest of chapter 4 is the story I told in kids time of Jonah sitting on a hill watching to see what happens. He builds a shelter to keep the sun off and God is gracious and kind and causes a plant to grow up over him and give him extra shade, a miraculous plant to ease his discomfort. And it says Jonah was very happy about the plant. And then to teach a lesson God arranges for a worm to eat the plant so that it withered and died. And then a scorching east wind is provided to help make the point. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, said Jonah. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But, but the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have more concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. And the book just ends there. Which is very annoying to people like me, who want closure, who want it explained, who want an answer. What happened next? What was the moral of the story? Why did all this happen? Some of that is left as an exercise for the reader to encourage us to think, and to talk to each other, and to pray. God gave us brains for a reason, 
And that reason is not just to keep our ears apart so our glasses wouldn't fall off. He wants us to think about things and ask questions. For me, the whole point of this story is there in those last two verses of chapter 10 and 11. Jonah thought the plant was his. He thought about the plant as his plant, even though he didn't make it grow. It was here for a day, and then it went. And when Jonah looked at the city of Nineveh, Jonah didn't see people. He saw enemies. He saw threats. He saw them, not us. He saw a group of outsiders who should be destroyed. And if Jonah could manipulate God into destroying them, then that was what he was going to do. But when God looks at Nineveh, this great city, 120,000 people, people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, people who don't know right from wrong, people who don't know better, he doesn't see them, he sees us. He sees his people, people he loves and has concern for, even as they do things he really does not like. And that to me is the whole point of the story of Jonah. It's not about the fish. The fish is an interesting attraction on the way to the truth of the story. We live in a world in which it's easy to see others as them, to see other people as different, to see them as less than us, whoever it is that us are. We're right, they're wrong. And if they can't see that they're wrong, then they are evil and they deserve to be destroyed. We see it in so many ways. See people arguing on Facebook or arguing on the internet or the, the horrible things that go on in the dark corners of the world. We see it in politics, particularly at the moment. Red versus blue, blue versus red. You hear the way the politicians talk to each other. Last night on the ABC, a couple of the Liberal senators and the Labor senators pointing out to each other the things that were wrong and how they were very, very wicked with each other. And the mediator in the middle saying, all right, just calm down. <laughs> it's Okay. See it in America. Let's pray for the peace of America this week. Whatever's going to happen, someone's going to get shot. We need to pray that God puts his hand on that whole situation. Red versus blue or blue versus red. It doesn't matter which side you're on. It doesn't matter if you're green or orange or pink or any of the other political colors. We shouldn't be seeing the other people as them and as an enemy to be destroyed. We need to see them how God sees them. The message of Jonah is that those them, those guys over there, those them, God, they're his. The them are his. The sign of Jonah that Jesus talked about is the sign that God will bring someone back from the dead to share a message of hope and love and grace and mercy. Jesus is our reminder that God has paid an incredible price for each and every person, that each person is of infinite value because Jesus died for them. Something is worth what someone is willing to pay. I bought a house. They made me pay this price because if I hadn't paid that price, someone else would have paid a dollar more or a dollar less. 
The house was worth what someone was willing to pay. You are worth Jesus' blood. And so are they, whoever they happen to be. Jesus died for them. He paid his life for them. And so those people are of infinite value. Even those people we cannot stand. Jesus died and lives for them. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we thank you for Jonah. Cranky man that he was. We thank you for the message that he shares with us today. Of your amazing and compassionate love. Of your power. Of your grace. Of your mercy. That you are slow to anger and abounding in love. Father God, I thank you for giving Jonah a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. Father God, for all the other chances you must have given him in his life. Father God, help us to hear your voice speaking to us today through your word. Help us to see in Jonah that picture of Jesus who would spend three days in the world of the dead and then come back to show that he is who you say he is. Father God, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know Jesus in a real and personal way, fill them with your love and draw them closer to you. And Father, for the rest of us who get so angry and would rather see destruction and fire heaped upon our enemies, help us to see those people the way you see them, of infinite value. Thank you, Father God. Change our hearts and change our minds. Draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.